information podcast uh where me and a guest talk about a book that we both read i'm here with xander and we're going to talk about Knut hampson's uh book hunger uh hey xander hey thank you so much for having me i'm honored to be here <laughs> thanks uh how's it going yeah it's good it's uh this is my first podcast um i've always been told i have a good face for radio so um <laughs> long time coming but yeah it's a beautiful day we're sitting here in my office yeah and, uh, glad to have you over this is the first one i've done with someone in person i just had to hike across town um yeah cool thanks for doing this of course uh we're talking about Knut hansen's hunger which came out in 1890 and it was his first novel and from my understanding it kind of set him off like he was very successful uh, after that, um, have you read any Knut Hampson other than Hunger? Yeah, I actually remember. I think this is one of the first conversations that we ever had about literature. Was I think I was reading Growth of the Soil when we oh, first met, yeah. and that was the first Knut Hampson that I read, which is interesting because it's sort of seen as his last great book, at least based on some things that I've read, and it's what won him the Nobel Prize in 1920. So. That's what I started with, and then I went backwards and read Pan, which I believe was his second novel after Hunger. Um, and so, yeah, I've read uh, Growth of the Soil, Pan, and Hunger, and I'm curious kind of what would be next in that yeah. sequence. Yeah, I think um, you're right, like, from an, our American perspective, I think the only things really available by Knut Hampson are the handful of novels he wrote in the late 19th century and then growth of the soil and then anything in between or after it, there aren't readily uh, available translations of um so so yeah i think growth of the soil is kind of considered his last great thing though <clears throat> he uh after world war ii was actually uh imprisoned for treason and the he was such a national hero and icon that they were trying to say like Knut Hampson you're very old and maybe you weren't really aware of the things you were writing and publishing and saying and he said uh no I may be old but I am as sharp and as smart as I ever was and so while in prison he wrote a novel that I think he was calling like his greatest work mm. just to to prove to everyone that he was uh, not senile or like losing his faculties or anything like that. Um, that information is based on a movie I watched. I don't know if it's actually true. Yeah, I read that he wrote his last novel at 90 mm -hmm. um, before he died. And uh, I actually, on the subject of translation, sort of started with the Robert Bly translation of Hunger and read the first part in his translation, and then I kind of misplaced my book, so I started reading a Project Gutenberg version of another translation that was almost like it had been done by an AI, and was completely graceless, and then went back to Robert Bly for the third part, and realized this was such a dis disjointed, stupid reading experience <laughs> that I actually, this week, went back and reread the whole thing in oh. the Robert Bly translation, I'm really glad I did, because I feel like it is a good book to read in big 
gulps. It's sort of yeah best suited for these kind of like long sessions, and it reads very quickly as well. Yeah, it does. It, yeah, the book is divided into four sections, and it's very easy to sit and read a one one full section of kind of like in, in a sitting. Right. Uh, uh, I think I've read this book. I've read it a number of times now. I like did my undergraduate senior thesis on this book and i think i have a memory of maybe sitting in a cafe reading it in one sitting mm. like in a day which um i mean i don't think i don't remember enjoying that experience <laughs> i don't think it's the way to do it uh but bef- maybe we should give a summary for the uh for the uh dum-dums out there that haven't read uh, the, oh, the yes. book already we can enlighten the masses yeah <laughs> they're dying to know what this is about <laughs> Uh, uh, do you want to give a, a summary, or I can with either? Yeah, we can. Maybe we can tag team a little bit. Yeah, and, um, I you know took some notes. So um, as you said, the book is divided into four parts. Uh, it takes place in Christiania or Christiania, as Oslo was called, until 1925. Um, he describes this as this strange city as that no one escapes from until it has left its mark on him. That's the first sort of the opening of the book. And when we meet the hero, he's starving in a cheap boarding house in a room that he described as being like a badly built coffin. He's pawned most of his possessions. He's sort of been applying to random jobs as a bill collector and a firefighter, but he keeps getting denied. And his kind of sanity is deteriorating along with his clothes. And so he becomes less and less presentable to, you know, potential employers. And he's also a few days past rent. um, So he's kind of trying to avoid his landlady. Um, And really over the course of the next, I think it takes place over a course of a, a few months, but correct me if I'm wrong there. I think that's what the afterword by Robert Bly says. Okay. It's a few months. So you can almost sort of track his emotions like up and down, but they always kind of come back to this mean of like desperation and hunger throughout the entire book. Like he, he has these small victories and these like real tragedies, but it always sort of comes back to this place where we first found him in starting in this, this boarding house. Um, so his real goal in life is to get uh, articles published in these national newspapers that he sort of talks about having read throughout his life. It's clear that he's you know been a big reader since he was a kid. Um, and it's funny, the pieces that, he's, that he sees as being the most saleable that he writes have names like Crimes of the Future and Freedom of the Will. <laughs> and I love that he describes these as being the ones that he thinks are the most, <laughs> the most right for the masses and readers of, of these, uh, these newspapers. And what's, what's interesting is like at first, when you open the book, he seems kind of like an ordinary 20 something lost in a city, like the kind of person you might meet in any city in the world, like in Brooklyn, I can picture mm-hmm. a struggling writer like this, but very quickly we realize that he's not an ordinary 20 uh, something. He's quite unstable. And we really first start to see this through the interactions that he has with others out on the street, um, which really defy social convention um, in a lot of ways. So um, we also like kind of in this first part realize that he has this strange habit of giving away every penny that he gets. Mm -hmm. Um, And he kind of lives with this strange code of honor where he like won't accept money. He won't accept help or food. And it leads him into these increasingly kind of desperate situations. Um, We, I think really realize what a, misanthropy is when he starts menacing women out on the street and this becomes kind of a consequential part of the book um yeah uh and he the 
there's a a recurring woman throughout who uh he invents a name for uh which i don't really yeah uh and he he starts by kind of harassing her but then they almost have in a later section almost like a courtship that kind of ends badly but then and then in the final section she actually like sends him some money she sees him on the street and then sends him some money um and we'll probably get into all of that more but the one insight i had when i was like 22 years old and reading this book was that he he's walking up and down carl johan's street uh again and again uh kind of like and then he invents this name like it's not her real name he just invents it and the name is uh, a palindrome it's not like it's not spelled in a palindrome, but Y is the first letter and I is the last letter. And that makes it sort of a palindrome. And so while he's physically kind of moving in a palindromic sense, like up and down, back and forth, his brain sort of reproduces those movements in the, in the name that he creates for, for this woman. And to me, that kind of highlights this, uh, the idea that his physical material existence is uh connected to and reproduced in sort of his his mental existence as well Mm. so like like when he's (laughs) physically starving the book describes like all of the like his hair falls out and all of this stuff at the same time it doesn't necessarily describe his mental state but it kind of shows his mental state and it's like one deteriorates so does the other and so uh it kind of makes this connection sort Mm. of between uh, body and mind, I guess, and the just the the little name is sort of a detail that to me sort of like highlights that or illustrates that. It's so interesting. It is this really kind of cryptic, recurring like mantra throughout the book that he says at you know various times when he's extremely desperate or he's ecstatic, and then correct me if I'm wrong, but he kind of comes up with the name before he meets the woman. Is that right? I think he sees her walking with her sister and that's when he comes up with the name i see and at some point he actually learns her name like they they start kind of flirting and she invites him over and and stuff and there's a line that's like we gave each other our names we never learned the narrator's name um and so he learns her correct name but then after that still just refers to her as uh elali or I've never learned how to say that. Right. <laughs> but Yeah, it, right at the beginning of part two, he kind of elaborates on this, like, myth of Yulali, that this princess that yeah. he kind of pictures in this castle that's made of different emeralds, and there's these, like, sequence of chambers that lead to her in this bed made of flowers. And so he has this kind of, like, that becomes sort of his, like, happy escape that he seems to, like, go to at certain parts of the book. And then he kind of wants this woman that he meets out on the street to be this character for him. And it's, and we'll get to this, but it's a very painful sequence of events that, you know, leads to this disintegration of that kind of dream. Yeah. Um, really he's, he's entirely incapable of forming any kind of connection with anyone like lasting connection. Yeah. Um, and that's really a lot of the book is him kind of like 
bouncing around, interacting with different people and having these kind of like abortive attempts at social interaction because he's, he's so arrogant with mm -hmm. people and he also is a pathological liar and creates different person personas for himself. Like at one point a prostitute kind of propositions him and even says, you know, even if you don't have money, come with me. And he's, he wants to go with her, but he's so horrified that she thinks that he doesn't have money that he creates this persona that he's like a pastor and he gives her this like sermon about how she shouldn't be out on the street. Um, and, you know, at other times, like when he uh, registers as homeless mm -hmm. at the, uh, the police station, he lets, he sort of thinks of himself as this like kind of diplomat that's, it shouldn't really be there. And then gives his name as being this like newspaper journalist. So he really, he is kind of a man without a, a, a face in, in a way. Yeah. So it makes it very hard for him. I guess the point is to, to connect with other people. And that really is a lot of the meat of the book. Those yeah. interactions yeah i hadn't thought of that before but like i mean the most basic summary of the book would be he walks around oslo trying to get money to mm -hmm. buy food um but equally he walks around oslo interacting with people in sort of in like uh superficial and or like bad ways he d there is no one uh that he cares for really uh except for like this elude this like made up version of this woman he doesn't know and no one really cares for him either and people will sometimes try like when an editor tries to give him money and uh people will try to give him money but he rebuffs them and like refuses it so uh yeah and something i've always wondered about that and the character in general is like does he behave this way because he's hungry? Like, does that explain all of it? Or is he sort of, um, like, is he disturbed because he's been starving? Or was he disturbed prior to this and starving sort of uh, accentuates it or makes it worse or something? Yeah, no, that is, I think, like, one of the big questions of the book that we have as a reader. And I think connected to that is also, like, do we have sympathy for this character? You know, and is he... Are there redeeming aspects of, of him, you know, himself? Like he does live by this code of honor. But I think to this point about like, is, is he just in a kind of a manic state that's induced by starvation? We get these like glimpses of his earlier life, um, actually through his interaction with this young woman that he meets, that she, I think, shares that she actually had seen him at the theater with a couple of his friends like years earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, and he describes, you know, that was a, a, a simpler time where he used to laugh a lot. And she said that, oh, she saw him with his friends. They were, they were probably drunk and laughing. And so you, you had the sense that he, there was a happier phase of his time in Oslo and he now has entered this like nightmare phase. So I think there is argument kind of for both. Yeah, well, I think even in that, she says that he was acting weird that night. Like, he was probably drunk and acting weird, but he was still, like, acting weird, which is consistent. Yes. So it's like he still had, he was probably still, to some extent, like, antisocial or asocial or something. Um, and it, it seems like it's been made much, it's, like, more severe now that he's starving. Yeah, I think that another really interesting aspect of the book is like to what extent is this like self-induced like he he there's so many points at oh, which yeah. he could help himself but he refuses help and um that one of my favorite 
pieces is at, at the end of part two. It's, it's the last section of part two where he's in this totally kind of catatonic state, like wandering around the streets and he runs into someone who he used to know. And this guy is like, I can't believe you're living like this. You're such an idiot. You're coming with me. I'm getting you a meal. And he forces him to eat and sort of speaks for all of us and saying like, this is not a way to live. And yeah. I also find it kind of funny as someone who thinks of himself as a writer, but also has kind of pursued a like practical conventional career that has allowed me to have that time to write that he's trying as a beginner to live off of the earnings of newspaper articles. It's just such an unrealistic goal that he has set for himself. And I suppose he, he has tried to gain other employment but he at this point that we've met him he's largely given up like i think he applies to yeah. a grocer to be a bookkeeper but he writes the wrong year which is so painful <laughs> on his application so they deny his applications yeah. one of many painful near near misses of the of the book um but yeah i think the, i mean you mentioned sort of the physical deterioration of his body and yeah. there is a point at which he sort of says like I hate this sagging body that I kind of wear. I, I want to die. I don't want this body anymore. And really it is the prison of his body is a prison. It's kind of yeah. has needs that he really wishes he didn't have to deal with because he wants to be in these kind of like ecstatic, you know, modes of writing. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, the, it's funny that he's trying to make his living off of selling newspaper articles. I think in the afterward, it's mentioned that like, he's hoping like, he says that a normal newspaper article will sell for like five Norwegian crowns or like at best 10 Norwegian crowns. I think that's like based on the afterward, that's like $3. Uh, and maybe in 1890, like $3 went a little further, but I don't think ever was that enough to like sustain oneself on. Uh, so he's like really like, scraping by he's like, down now. what what he needs is like minimal uh and he's still not not getting it which yeah i mean it does seem like to some extent like his problem is partly at least of his own making and then like so he's sort of his body being a prison he's sort of created that prison uh for himself um but yeah i don't know <laughs> yeah i think that like this this bit about him kind of bringing this on himself like this code of honor that he kind of imposes on himself that you know every time he gets any money he gives it to people on the street or when he doesn't have money he's promising people like i'll i'll remember you i'll come back to yeah, you and i'll yeah. give you money when i have it like there's a kid working in the stables below the tinsmith's studio where he sleeps in the, in the second part and third part um and he promises him you know five kroner that the kid needs and i think he really like then that sets him off on these like little adventures that he goes yeah. on to to try and find that money um but it it's it's sort of the thing that's redeeming about him as a character um but then uh that and, and I think Knut Hamsen does a really good job of setting this up as like this thread that we kind of follow that we're, we, we're kind of angry at him, the character throughout the book for not accepting help, but there's something kind of charming about it. And then in book four, when he sort of is kind of entirely lost, like any stability in his life, 
he finally kind of cracks and starts accepting money mm-hmm. and uh, betrays this kind of honor that he's sort of set for himself by demanding um, something in return for like a gift of charity that he's given to this yeah. cake seller. Yeah. Which is really like felt to me like the kind of climax of the, the story. Yeah. So just to explain, he, he gets, he, he goes to try to get a candle so that he can write. And the, the grocer that he buys the candle from says like, Oh, you already paid. Here's your change. And that was just a mistake. He hadn't paid and he didn't, didn't have money to pay. And he, he took that money and then he realized he had broken his own code of honor by like taking that money. But rather than returning the money to the grocer, he gives it to to a woman uh, who sells cakes and just kind of um, gives it to her. And then later, he he's in a bad spot. He returns to that woman and says, like, do you remember when I gave you that money? I'm going to take my cakes now. Uh, and it's a pretty terrible uh, exchange. He's like, because uh, you get the sense that this woman is also pretty poor and just scraping by and uh she gives him some cakes uh but yeah that that's where he does sort of um his code of honor break breaks down uh at that point i think you're right and then from there he sort of gives up on everything he stops trying to uh be a writer and he just goes to the docks and gets a job on a boat and leaves oslo Right. Yeah. Maybe this is like a logical time to talk a little bit about how this story reflects Knut Hamsen's actual life and sort of where he was inspired to write this story. Because I've I read a bit about, you know, what precipitated the writing of Hunger and you know, under what conditions this book was actually written um, by Hamsen. And so sort of what I understood was that he um, moved, he had been basically on his own from like 14. He was apprenticing for shoemakers and as like a sidekick to a sheriff, which I think is really funny. Um, and at, at 20, he wrote his first novella and he went to Oslo and like this character went to like the top publishing house in Oslo, pitched the novel, they denied it. So he decided I'm going to take it to this famous um, Norwegian writer, Bjornstrom Bjornsson. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've ever read anything by him, but he's just a couple short stories, but yeah. So he's up there with like Ibsen as being one of the kind of pantheon of great um, Norwegian writers. So he goes to this this um, this famous writer, gives him the novella, and the, he reads it and says, "You're not cut out to be a writer. You should be an actor." And he sort of starts this ten year stretch of starvation and hunger that results in the book mm-hmm. uh, Hunger, which he publishes at I believe at thirty or thirty one. During that period, he's like basically living like this main the main character of, of Hunger, yeah, and like this character at different points of desperation does leave um, Oslo and actually comes to the United States yeah. and works um, in the fields in North Dakota and he cuts hair and he's works as a streetcar conductor, I think in Chicago. Um, and at one point he contracts tuberculosis here and <laughs> supposedly cures himself by riding on the top of a train um, from Minneapolis to New York with his mouth open on the top of the train and yeah. actually like, apparently did cure himself. I don't know if that's what did it, but yeah. um, so he has these kind of like interesting adventures. And I think his first real book was a 
very like scathing commentary on American culture, which I don't know if that's ever been translated into English. I think there is, but I have I haven't read it. Um, yeah, and I don't know that it's currently in print. I just remember that the library uh, that I went to college at had had a copy of it. Yeah, um, but yeah, everything you just said is what I've heard as well. <laughs> right, <laughs> and he returns. So he returns to New York. Uh, sorry, returns from New York to Norway and starts this kind of second period of starvation, is continuing to try and sell articles to um, newspapers. And this really was the spring and summer of 1886 that were the main inspiration for the book. Um, And this was actually, he goes then back to the United States again and returns to Europe again. So he's got really this like itinerant existence that really does feel like we're getting a glimpse into it when we read this book, Hunger. It's so intimately familiar with the nuances of starvation yeah. that you really feel like you couldn't write this unless you'd actually experienced it. Yeah, I think I think he'd this may or may not be true, but in my memory lives this anecdote that he had finished maybe just the first part of Hunger and he took it to an editor and then left and the editor read it and then like tracked him down, realizing that what he was describing in the book was that was Hampson's experience and so he like tracked him down to like give him some money so that he could like make it through uh, it's so incredible he, yeah he definitely was starving i don't know if it's worth mentioning or not but there were two i think in the 19th century two kind of large norwegian migrations um to, to america and to the midwest i think the first was like in the 1850s and then in the 1880s and so it sounds like he was um i don't know just to contextualize yeah it, it, like it wasn't totally random that he was moving to America. Uh, a lot of Norwegians were doing it for work uh, at that time. Yeah, it's interesting. It's totally, like, uh, this is something I kind of find in, in a lot of Knut Thompson's books that I've, the two others that I've read, is they're so hyper-local. And I, I want to talk about, like, the specificity of the street names and the oh, locations yeah. and the kind of topography of, of Christiania. But then... You get these glimpses, like through commerce, usually, mm-hmm. of the wider world, and then at, in Pan, where just like for as an example, you're very zoomed into this kind of like coastal region in, in Norway, and then the afterward takes place in India. Yeah, and so I, it's something I really like about his books that they're very zoomed in and very personal and very like kind of based on the places where they exist, but you do get a sense of this wider world that either like it's just kind of off limits to the, mm-hmm. the the characters in a lot of ways like they're sort of trapped in the places where they live yeah um so i thought that was just kind of interesting and it, you know the book ends um i suppose we're doing spoiler alerts here oh spoiler <laughs> alert yeah um it <laughs> ends with like him 200 yeah like you said boat. loading uh you know like leaving on this on this boat um for england and then spain and you just know that he's not going to be, the, the, the captain says, we'll see how you do between here and Leeds. Yeah. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, we'll leave you in England. And you're like, okay, well, they're leaving you in England. Yeah, it's not going to work <laughs> out. <You can't. laughs> it's like, it's bad enough having you in an entire city, but like confining this guy on a boat is such a bad idea. Yeah, well, also he's like emaciated. And I would imagine, I've never worked on a boat, but my assumption is that it's physical labor, not intellectual labor. And he's, uh, absolutely ill-suited to uh, physical labor, so it's hard to imagine that it it works out um, for the character. 
um, when I when I was like, well, I wrote about this book for my like undergraduate senior thesis or whatever, and my like interpretation of the ending in that paper was sort of like this book is sort of like Hampson's argument against trying to be a writer or a writer's life. And now that you mentioned the code of ethics, it kind of also breaks down and that he also abandons at the end. It's almost like the last, like the, the first part is like uh, this character sort of displaying his code of ethics and life under this code of ethics and also life pursuing like art or writing and literature. And then the, the final part is sort of like, uh, well, that's all pretty fucked up. Uh, it's unsustainable. No one can live like this. So I'm going to leave it behind and uh, like work on a boat. Mm. Um, and I guess there, I, I think Hampson himself maybe felt amb- ambivalent about uh, sort of like, well, I think, I think he maybe, I think maybe that can, can be true, yet Hampson went on to like have a career as, as a writer. And I think when I was reading the book now, I was like, oh, this isn't, this isn't so much of an argument against being a writer as it's like against like the living in the city, like city life or cosmopolitanism almost where like, I think it, like, I've always been like, oh, Hunger, that's a book where like Oslo is a character. And when I was reading it now, I was like, yeah, Oslo is a character, but it's like the villain. It's mm-hmm. like the, the antagonist that's sort of like forcing him into all of this. And the only way out of it is to leave the city. And so even though I can't imagine it working out on the boat for him, I can imagine life working out for him out, outside of the city. And I do think Hampson didn't like living in Oslo. He eventually like bought a farm and lived lived out on a farm. And then like his novel Growth of the Soil is all about kind of going and finding uncultivated land and building your own farm. And then if I remember right, his wife gets arrested, goes to prison in the city, and then comes back kind of like a different person with that kind of like respects or like uh, envies like big city life and cosmopolitanism and stuff. And that's sort of like the end of their relationship. And so I felt like um, this book, Hunger, sort of rejects like city life, for lack of a better phrase. And then that's almost like reinforced by growth of the soil, where it's all about just self-sustaining farming and and stuff like that, living outside of society, kind of. Um, So that's my interpretation of, of the ending, kind of. No, it's that that gels with also kind of how how I interpret it. I hadn't really thought of it as whether it was being like an argument for or against being yeah. a writer, but I think that to your point about it being connected to just this like anti cosmopolitan yeah strain in, in Hampson's work, and that was sort of how I, I was introduced to him through Growth of the Soil. So it is this like almost like biblical allegory of a man creating this home, you know, farmstead in the like an uncultivated sort of part of um, Norway. And, you know, I, it's interesting because I think I kind of have sympathies with that 
oh, yeah. perspective. Yeah. And I, I do think that uh, I sort of like, it resonates with me, this idea that, you know, people in cities who work in like the kind of what we would call today, like the knowledge economy mm-hmm. are sort of creating like unsubstantial um, benefit for human society. And that it's the farmers and the people who are working with their hands that are sort of like more um, somehow just more virtuous by nature of like their very concrete existence that they live. And hunger is, is definitely like this. It's a scathing. It is a scathing criticism of, of city life through the eyes of this this kid, even though everyone around him is pretty much innocent, like he he's really the problem. It's not necessarily yeah. the city. Yeah. And then, you know, it, it's interesting that he went right from from hunger to Pan, which I yeah I actually think he didn't. Oh, we think he wrote Pan first. No, no, he wrote Hunger, and then I think he wrote a book called Mysteries. I see. And then Pan, and I have a vague memory that there were other things in between though mm-hmm. that haven't been translated, but I, I could be wrong. But I I know that Mysteries comes before Pan. I'm like. Pretty sure of Pan. I mean, it, if this was published 1890, Pan was 1894. But I think yeah, you know, it, it does seem like after he wrote Hunger, he kind of was off like a rocket, writing book he, after book. Yeah, I think he has four books published in the 1890s, or at least that have been translated, and those are kind of like what his reputation is like staked on. I think uh, people generally feel a little bit more ambivalent about Growth of the Soil, um, but the the first which is Hunger, Mysteries, Pan, and a very small novel called Victoria. Um, have you read that? Yeah, I have. It's a kind of in, a short, intense love story. Um, so kind of like the if you took Hunger and just the relationship aspect of it, that's kind of Victoria, except it's more mutual than it ends up being in Hunger, but there's none of the starving and writing stuff. And Pan has a love story that's somewhat similar yeah. you know, to this as well. <laughs> that one I think is crazy. Um, for people who don't know, this guy basically, like the protagonist of Pan, whose name I don't, John. Thomas Glan. Thomas Glan. <laughs> uh, like, he basically shoots himself in the foot somehow to like, and somehow that's supposed to impress a woman <laughs> or something. He just like does physical harm to himself and also to like her and people around her uh to woo her essentially and it doesn't make any sense i think hampson writes kind of irrational men uh in a way that is both off-putting and charming at the same time um right but yeah that's yeah and each one of them like it takes a little while to, to sort of understand the psychology of the characters like you know yeah. it's like they're they don't operate by the same logic that we do in our daily lives yeah and that makes them very like attractive protagonists or anti-heroes for these books and it's interesting like they you know growth of the soil also is kind of helmed by a an irrational character in the sense that he's so Mm self-reliant and takes on these extremely ambitious kind of agricultural projects yeah often successfully not always but it's like it's like almost like this character has grown up and found like you said, like a, a something to do that's going to satisfy this this just certain mode of living that was not being served by being a writer or by being like a kind of wandering hunter in Pan. Yeah, um, it's like he's found his he's found his roots in the soil. Yeah, you know, that's kind of interesting to think of him as like like 
this sort of like what if like uh, a continuation of the same type of per- protagonist but one who doesn't have this like gaping hole in their life or yeah something like, who finds something that satisfies them one thing i guess is i agree that these characters are irrational but i think maybe what makes them seem so irrational is that Hampson tries to externalize the internal psychology of, of a person. And when that's externalized, it, it, it appears irrational. But like, if you were to take every thought and feeling I had and present it to other people, I would seem probably as insane as, as these people. So I feel like he takes, what something he does well is he sort of takes the interior life of, of people and, um, exposes it and it it seems irrational but part of the reason that the characters are like compelling or charming or interesting is that it it still feels like like a real person like like the the games that the protagonist of hunger plays with himself are like games i could imagine myself playing as well um, but if I were to try to explain what I was doing to someone else, I would just sound crazy. Um, the, the My favorite example from this reading is he like has a piece of paper that he folds into like a cone or something, and then he throws it on the ground. And he's like, oh, someone's going to walk by that piece of paper and think there's money in it, and they're going to open it up, and there's going to be no money. And like, what a chump. Like, that they, like, I really fooled them. And, like, a policeman walks by, sees this piece of paper, picks it up, and it says that the the protagonist is sitting on this park bench, watching it happen, rubbing his hands back and forth, like Mr. Burns or something. Uh, just, like, as he's fooling this policeman. But the policeman, like, isn't being fooled. He's just picking up a piece of paper off the ground. Uh it's like a game that the guy's playing with himself that seems completely crazy, but it's also easy to imagine that kind of thing. Other people doing that kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I think this is like, it gets at something like trying to read the book from the perspective of someone reading it in the 1890s versus today. Oh, yeah. it, it almost reminded me of like when you watch a really influential film or listen to an album that was really influential and it it's sort of in a lot of the, in those cases where you're really kind of going back into the canon, you're like, oh, this doesn't seem so radical, you know, right now. Oh, yeah, and it's because sure. it's so influential that it's just become kind of part of the fabric of like human knowledge and, and creativity. And this book, on the other hand, which was like certainly one of those like kind of shot heard around the world, you know, publications, yeah. does still feel really radical and is very hard to read at at times there's oh, yeah. you know that the, like the physical deterioration is just from like a body horror kind of perspective very challenging i mean the the hair falling out in clumps and the his shirt that gets so caked with sweat that it starts to kind of rub at his navel and there's blood pooling in his belly button and yeah. it's i mean it's really gruesome physical you know trials that he's kind of going through uh, and you know, it, like he's almost not even aware of those things, or he doesn't mind it. Like at one point, his hair is falling out in clumps, and he's like, "That's okay, I've got a lot of hair." Yeah. And but then when other people kind of regard him, we get a sense, like it's like a mirror, you know, held up to him, and it's like, okay, he really is looking like a, a freak. Yeah. And he walks around kind of keeled over because the hunger 
pain paddings are so bad that he can't you know walk upright um he gets his toe run over by a carriage wheel so he's limping he tries to bite his finger off you know there's all of these like it just really his his he's going through the ringer through the course of this book and it almost does i i i'm curious if you also felt this way that there's a sick kind of humor to some of that Uh, as well i think it's a very like very funny book cartoonish yeah almost like the thing rubbing his hands together just seems like a cartoon i the my copy has a blurb that says one of the most disturbing novels in existence and uh i think that's like a silly thing to say because i don't maybe i did when i read it like when i was younger but now i didn't find most of it particularly disturbing because the character is so erratic that it seems like a cartoon the one thing that i found disturbing i always have is when he puts he's so hungry he puts his finger in his mouth and then he bites it and he draws blood and like the idea of being so hungry that you're going to start eating yourself it's like uh that is disturbing yeah but what i found most disturbing this time is how invigorated he was by it like it's a moment of clarity i I don't know i don't know if it's like he he got energy from whatever nutrients or whatever he tasted in his blood or if it like scared him out of his state i don't know which of those things but it really does like reinvigorate him and excite him in a way that i was like i don't know like you're too excited after like nearly eating yourself Um, yeah it it kind of freaked me out one thing i wanted to talk a little bit about was uh the influence that this book had on writers like arthur schnitzler i'm not sure if you've ever read um, dream story which was the inspiration for eyes wide shut oh okay uh or night games which is about a young man kind of like gambling his life away in um in vienna and it was, you know, said about Schnitzler that Freud was a big fan of his, that he felt like Schnitzler understood the kind of inti- like complexities of, of human, you know, psychology better than any scientist ever could. And it's it basically like that his writing could not have existed without hunger. Um, and that's basically, you know, what I find really interesting. Um, it's this, this sort of idea that like the worst nightmare of, a lot of sane people is that their interior thoughts are somehow broadcast externally and that they kind of like um that there's an incursion of interior life onto like polite society and that's what makes this book like per the funny blurb on the cover of your, you know yeah on the cover of your book like that's sort of where the horror really comes in for this is this like is like reading someone who's uninhibited yeah you know in a lot of ways and so i i found that that really that that was really the part of the book that's the most nightmarish, you know, to mm-hmm. me is that he, the things that we might think and the games we might play with ourselves that we keep to ourselves or only share with like our closest friends, you know, yeah, he is just he's out there doing that in public, yeah, and it's it really is painful to read <laughs> him doing that, and it's the same in Pam. I mean, the the kind of like secondhand shame mm-hmm. that you feel reading. Uh, pan and hunger both yeah like that's a unique skill that i think hampson has that our other you know shared you know favorite writer <laughs> uh carl ova which i feel like you can't talk yeah. about this without talking about carl ova is also kind of a master of uh the secondhand shame as a reader you know yeah he also 
tries to take or tries to take uh, every thought he had flattering or unflattering and and put it out there so that like everything like his internal and external self are all on display in in his in his books uh and and i think that's why a lot of people don't like him is there's like all these unfavorable ideas and stuff but that's like kind of the point is to sort of like be completely un unfiltered so that there's like I mean, this is impossible, but I do think it's kind of like what he was working towards, which is like, there's no difference between him and and the book. And of course there is, but he was like trying to like, I guess, close the gap between uh, art or literature and, and the person cr- creating it. Um, and so I, their methods are pretty different, but I think it's a similar sort of impulse in Hampson and and Carl over Canalsgaard. Um, Canalsgaard has talked about how Pan in particular was very influential to him. But And I think the scene in My Struggle where he smashes a mirror and cuts his face up when he meets the woman he wants to marry, uh, that's, to me that was like, oh, this is straight out of Pan. Like, yeah. oh, you see a, a woman you're attracted to? Let me like mutilate myself and that that will win her over (laughs) yeah and that for me was like one of the most impactful scenes of the entire six books of the my struggle series and you you had brought that to my attention that connection that was before i'd read any new thompson and you know the first time i ever heard of thompson was in my struggle when he you know mentions like discovering thompson and kind of like how influential that was on on his writing career and i think uh something that you know in book five of my struggle when he's living in oslo i uh, know i'm sorry in bergen yeah and the specificity of the street names and locations i had sort of felt like that was okay it's just sort of gonna go over my head and then i think you also sort of brought to my attention that that is really also kind of an homage to hunger where the street names and, and the specificity of locations is so kind of important and so present um yeah in the book and it also it reminded me of this anecdote that i had heard about james joyce when he was writing ulysses or part of ulysses and when he was in trieste and he wrote a letter back to a friend in dublin asking if a man of a specific height could scale a certain wall realistically (laughs) in dublin at this like alleyway because he was so concerned with making the, the realism of Dublin, like as this character, sort of as you said in Ulysses, and it's it felt sort of similar. Like they're all so loyal to the reality of the places, yeah, um, that they're taking place, and so I, I you see that in Nosgard as well as, yeah, obviously in, in this book. Yeah, that that is actually something I've noticed in a lot of Norwegian literature is like not only will they name specific streets and places, but they will like. I turned left on Carl Johan Street and then I turned right down this other, like every Norwegian novel I think I've ever read has like very specific directions in it. Like Hunger obviously has it, like uh, My Struggle has it. Uh, even uh, John Fossa, who's like a much more surrealist, like uh, he doesn't write sort of, realism in the way that other like these other guys do he still has directions through bergen um written in like every pair 
Anderson, who wrote Out Stealing Horses, he he does it as well. Everyone, I don't know why Norwegians are obsessed with like their street names mm. or like giving directions to, to people, but uh, maybe it all stems from Knud Hamsen. They all read Hunger and then they're like, oh, this is what a great novel is. It's uh, yeah, it's a lot of uh, directions. Yeah, I mean, this is like the birth of a certain kind of realism, from what I understand, and it was you know, like the. 20th century like kind of born in a in a novel you know 10 years before the 20th century began um but yeah that that is something it's also like i find it weirdly therapeutic like somehow to read very specific directions like there's something so objective about it it's just kind of it's almost like meditation and i love that carl ova also does that with like domestic life that he's he takes out you know the tea kettle he takes out the tea he puts it in the mug and like everything is very sequential and he describes it's like the directions of like his home mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And I just, I, that's been something very influential for me as a writer too. Like I, I just love reading that sort of thing. Um, I find it very like escapist. It yeah. just somehow brings you elsewhere, which is, you know, partially why we, we read. Yeah. So, um, talking about hunger, birthing a new type of writing or something i think there's a a quote maybe it's a foreword in an edition i have but a, a writer i've never read isaac bashiva's singer um has said that like all of modern limit literature stems from Knut hampson which is one of those grandiose <laughs> statements that you can neither confirm nor deny i guess but um i do think especially in the context of Norwegian literature, um, like Henrik Ibsen and Bjorn Bjornsson um, wrote sort of very socially conscious um, literature where it was saying something about society and kind of famously Knut Hampson would give lectures um, just deriding that type of literature. Um, even when like, Henrik Ibsen was in the audience. He gave like a scathing critique of uh, contemporary Norwegian literature. And you can see that like in Knut Hansen's novels, they're very interested in the individual. Um, there, there's, it's not like society or culture is totally absent from them, but that's not what he's trying to get at he's trying to like understand the the individual person that he's 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 writing about so it's a it is a departure from what was um considered great in norwegian literature at the time in the 19th century there was four they're called colloquially like the big four and it's like four great it's like the pantheon of norwegian literature Mm -hmm. it's henrik ibsen and bjorn bjornsson and then i don't know their first names but uh, Lie, L-I-E, and then Chellen, or Kellen, is a Kylan, uh, K-I-E-L-A-N-D, I think, is the other two. I've never read those. They obviously haven't traveled as well, I guess, mm. and been translated. Anyways, but that's sort of what, specifically what Hampson was railing against and why I think he focuses not only on, like, an individual person, but, like, um, demonstrating sort of, like, the 
whirlwind of life that happens inside that person, um, like externalizing what isn't normally externalized in, in a person. And that is very mo modernist um, 20th century. I think, uh, sorry, I'm rambling a little bit, but uh, this book reminds me, and I think is sometimes maybe compared to a crime and punishment uh, because it's sort of like a, a crazy guy trying out his like weird ideas uh on people and i think uh dostoevsky also seems like the father of modernism or modern literature or something so i think uh hansen is maybe not as well known or well read but it, if someone is wondering what this book is like it's kind of like reading crime and punishment uh, they're very they're very similar though i've read hansen wouldn't have been able to read uh, Dostoevsky um, because of translate, like he didn't know Russian and it hadn't been translated into Norwegian and maybe not German either. Mm -hmm. So I think that they're very similar. They have like their finger on similar pulses yeah. of, of the times. When was Crime and Punishment published? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. Oh, but if they... It is the 19th century. I want to say like 1860s, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, the, the aspect of sort of Hamsen being kind of throughout his career out of step with the popular politics of the time, I think is really interesting. Um, you know, this is like 1866. Uh, 1866. Yeah. You know, it's a time in history when starvation would have been much more present and in your face, you know, and um, famously, you know, when he learned that he won the Nobel Prize in 1920, he announced that he would improve his flower garden with the proceeds from the, the the award and this was at a time when you know europe was rebuilding from world war one yeah and so he he really and in that sense he like had a little bit of that kind of natural misanthropic you know energy that um his yeah. characters do um but yeah the, i love the the anecdote about him kind of making a scathing uh criticism of ibsen while ibsen was in the audience and then ibsen goes and writes a book where this sort of younger architect is criticizing the older architect who's, you know, who's designed a lot of like domestic architecture and the older architect says like, well, I should have like written more cathedral or uh, designed more cathedrals. And it's this like, you know, kind of a reflection of that interaction yeah. between Ibsen and Hansen, which I, I found um, really interesting. But yeah, there's definitely like an iconoclastic element to this book. You know, you do get the sense that it's like, it is a kind of punk rock insult to, the, the traditions of like Norwegian literature and world literature, I think, you yeah. know, in a lot of ways. Um, so I wanted to ask you about your favorite jokes from the book because or like funny scenes, because there's some, my personal favorite, which I'll share yeah. is right at the end when he was, he's like, wants to curse out the landlady and he's got all these like, you know, slurs against her, like in his head, but he decides he doesn't want to, curse uh in front of the sailor who is also present and i just thought that's like such like a good joke it's like it's like a mel brooks level joke that yeah. he's like doesn't want to curse in front of a sailor yeah that really made me laugh out loud and there were a couple moments where i just couldn't help but laughing at his like yeah those sort of like the logic of that yeah the i mean the, i already mentioned it the thing for me about just like 
sitting on a park bench rubbing his hands together thinking he's like really pulling one over on a guy picking up a piece of paper uh i that was really funny to yeah me. like uh I don't think it's a joke in the way that the sailor thing seems like a joke, but it's just, like imagining it just seems so cartoonish and silly to me that I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. And um, the line between like comedy and tragedy in the book is like really kind of close. Like there's the, yeah. you know, the bit where um, he gets this like money accidentally that's given to him by the grocer and he's like, oh, he knows he really shouldn't eat something so rich, but he's like, smells roast beef and he's like i need to eat roast beef right now mm -hmm. and he eats it and like immediately starts vomiting and there's this like yeah. this tragic kind of like it really feels like a greek tragedy like this is a punishment by the gods that he like he needs to eat but eating makes him sick and throughout the book he like does the, the vomiting on the street is like a real recurring yeah. theme yeah there's a lot of puking it's a lot of puking um yeah i was just flipping through trying to find other funny funny bits but uh, i don't know if i will yeah he's uh oh the i mean there's another one that takes place in this sort of lodging house at the end um where there's like a the father of the landlords mm -hmm. is like paralyzed and he's sort of sitting there and the kids are shoving things in his ears and the old man just like suddenly spits in the face of the of the child oh yeah and tries <laughs> to spit in the face of the other child and they <laughs> The landlord yells, so you have the gall to sit there and spit in the eyes of children, do you, you old pig? <laughs> that one, that one got me. <laughs> yeah, that's funny, because in Pan, uh, the character spits in someone's ear. And so, like, Hanson's obsessed with people spitting on people, which is is rude and should not be done. Yeah, we're not condoning that. But I do think spitting is really funny. And before we were on air... Uh, I mentioned that I played badminton uh, or I took a badminton class in, in college with my friend and we would play against people and, and we'd play against each other and my friend would like sometimes spike it and score and then whether it was against me or someone else in the class he'd just sort of look at the person and then spit but just onto his chest <laughs> so, so it was like what do you think of that? It was like <laughs> kind of like a defiant, tough act, but one that sort of degraded himself. himself. And I thought that was hilarious. That's very hunger. Yeah, very exactly. hunger. Except my friend was doing it intentionally, and I yeah. feel like in hunger, the character would be trying to spit on someone and then just spit yeah. on himself and uh, feel disgusting. But what do you make of the um, the scene where the landlady's husband is like spying through the keyhole and sees the landlady and the sailor having sex and the father of the landlady sitting in the room paralyzed that's a really yeah. david lynch yeah. dark scene and like the, and the the husband of the landlady as i interpreted it is just sitting there laughing and he's so amused by this and you get the sense that this happens a lot at this boarding house yeah and i love that the you know this is the kind of thing that like a writer would see that and be like oh this is something i might use in my book but the main character is like I need to block this out of my mind so I can go back and focus <laughs> on my articles about, you know, the freedom of the will and crimes of the future. It's, yeah. He's so disconnected from writing about his, his existence and, you know, drawing inspiration from his actual life. Yeah. You know, and he writes about an allegory of a, a fire in a bookstore. Like he's, 
he's really grasping at these like very grandiose ideas in, in his writing which makes his work as we said like entirely unsaleable yeah I uh, I think David Lynch is the correct way to describe that that scene. Uh, I can imagine seeing that on TV as a kid and just being like freaked, freaked, out. freaked out. Yeah, uh, I I don't have a, a reading of it beyond that, but I guess like in today's parlance, the character of this book does have kind of like incel vibes, where like he both like obsesses and uh romanticizes these women um but then also seems like deeply uncomfortable with sex or sexuality um at at the same time uh i don't have much to say beyond that but yeah this like it's maybe not fair to to read this book and be and like label him as an incel or something but it's also like he does also, he just has sort of like a, a weird energy that you wouldn't want to trust. No, no, and you're right. No. He does. He's also like repulsed by what he perceives as like the sexual licentiousness of the city that he kind of like reads at certain weird moments. Like he talks about at one point he's out in the street and he's looking around and it seems like everyone's kind of coupling off to go have sex. And even the cats are having like loud sex yeah. in the doorway of some like pub. Um and he, at that moment, sort of is talking about how because of his starvation, perhaps, or maybe this is just part of his character, he, like, feels nothing sexually. Like, he's that part of his body is totally dead. And he says that, like, women are like men to him yeah, now. Yeah, he does. And I thought that he has this, like, interesting little speech where you realize that he's... But then, you know, he is, he is aroused by his interaction at the, the young woman's house that he has yeah. with her, which is one of the most awkward scenes I have ever read or encountered in, in anything. Yeah. Um, I was just gonna, he, he, he has this, like, I mean, he's not completely opposed to sex, but it has to kind of follow his own code of honor, code of ethics or something. And so there's this like obsession with purity might not be the right word, but everything has to happen. Uh, a particular way otherwise it's sort of corrupted and and wrong and it, uh that i don't find super sympathetic about no. him uh, i think it's probably problematic but uh what do you find so awkward about the uh the interaction at the young woman's house well you get the sense that she is kind of morbidly fascinated with him thinking that he's just kind of a young drunk that, yeah that she sort of attributes a lot of his behaviors that she's encountered to him drinking too much including and the, the scene really turns when she notices all the hair that's sitting on his shoulders yeah and so she's she sees him and she's like your habits must be frightful you've got this hair falling out you know what's going on and he he admits to her that actually he's starving to death and he's trying to live this like completely unrealistic existence um and the way that she suddenly closes off to him and he's trying to get her to open up once again but it's so lost i mean he's he's shut the door so definitively Mm -hmm. and he makes these these speeches and he kind of tries to be this like almost 
you know, nightly, you know, it's this like nightly courtship that he like is sort of trying to enact, but she, she is at that point completely gone. And just that, the failure of that. And I think that's the end of part three is yeah. her, he, he walks on and she sort of stays at the doorway. And I think she, and it's also it, because he's also scared her. Yeah. And I think that that's really the part that's the most disturbing is you don't want him to be alone with a young woman like in her house it's just yeah it seems dangerous for her and it seems like it's not going to end well for him either so it's just such an uncomfortable encounter does that make yeah, sense yeah yeah totally and i feel like you get the sense even before things go bad and even you're like is she really going to invite him upstairs because like we the reader know like exactly how unhinged this guy is yeah not that not that i would would fear he would do violence or anything to the woman, but you're just like, this is not going to go well. Yeah. Like this isn't the sort of guy you want to invite home. Uh, and then, so like for me, there's this like, anti- like anticipation and dread yeah. that I feel like le- leading up, up to it. And then she, it, it's like a, a realization she has, which is like, Oh, this isn't just like some quirky guy I saw at, the theater like this guy like has real problems he's like crazy. problem like he's, he's crazy and he's starving and it's like m- more than she wants to take on or, or deal with and so i mean kudos to her she immediately like cuts it off and yeah. is like you need to get out of yeah. here uh and then she ends up taking pity on him later on and i feel like for him that's probably that really goes against his code of honor or code of ethics and this yeah probably pretty humiliation the final humiliation yeah you know the the first kiss that they have which is um sorry one second oh yeah no worries the first kiss um is right after he's vomited roast beef for like a couple hours and he he's going back to his like room and sees her and she's kind of been she sort of stakes him out yeah you know after he has like menaced her but he, she's kind of curious about it and they had this kiss right after he's vomited and i just i read that and i was like "Ooh, that's that's yeah. dark and she still you know wants to see him again so who knows what her life is yeah. like she lives with her deaf mother and she's you know has this sort of sad existence as well yeah i mean it just so people can understand the first time that they interact he sees her on the street thinks she's beautiful uh gives her this fake name and then just follows her for a long time and then says lady you're dropping your books and she like doesn't have any books or anything and she's like what and he's just like you're losing your books they're falling everywhere and she like has no idea what he's talking about and just walks off and then he continues to follow her and then in the next, and then that's kind of like, he follows her home and sees where she lives and then lets her be. And then in the next section, she starts standing out. Like he sees her regularly standing outside in a black veil or something like that. Um, it's almost like she's trying to run into him and eventually they do. And then they go back home. And so it's just to say like, he from the start acts insane, but at first she thinks maybe like it's a joke or it's charming in some way and then in the apartment things become too real for her and she has, has to yeah. cut it off he's the most like unconventional pickup artist of all time <laughs> yeah but the, i mean the pickup artist it does 
kind of feel like that uh, to me. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I think your your like the comparison with incel is not totally off base, and it's sort of like the internet is a place where you can sort of show your darkest interior thoughts. You know, yeah, it's that's, like that's a good point. you both have. It's both a space. It's a space for some people to construct like mythic versions of their personality that are very sanitized. Yeah, and then for other people, under the veil of anonymity, can show the darkest impulses of, of themselves. So I feel like reading this book in the age of the of social media and the internet is a totally different experience. Yeah, you know? that is funny. This is this is like a uh, I don't know a four chan troll like a yeah. pre- prediction proto troll like, like what it would have been kind of yeah. Uh, because he is, it's so unfiltered and he's unhinged. And he's anonymous. We don't ever learn his Yes, name. exactly. Uh, he's anonymous. Yeah. And, uh, I was going to, the only thing I was going to ask you about, and this is maybe like more just for yeah. our own, um, my interest is like, does this character, do you feel like this character has appeared in anything else that you've seen? Like, for me, he reminds me a little bit of the master, the character of the master. The Paul Thomas Anderson movie, Joaquin, Joaquin Phoenix. Phoenix. Oh, yeah, I, like, see, I see that. Just like this sort of unhinged, lonely guy who is his worst own worst enemy. Like, yeah, and also probably crazy. Like that. It just reminded that, that character, the master, is the closest thing I've seen in literature to this, or in, in cinema to. Yeah, I think that's probably that's a good comparison. He is. Joaquin Phoenix in that movie is able to make some sort of connection with people, or he's clo- oh, yeah. he's closer than uh, closer than this guy. Hunger ever is the only thing I can because uh, I haven't really thought about it that much. Is like the like I feel like despite his best efforts, Carl Ovakanelskard's books are a little more artificial than mm. they first appear. And I feel like a lot of the things that he does in it are are kind of mirroring Hampson sort of things. And so in particular in the fifth volume of My Struggle where he's wandering around Bergen, yeah. uh, going to writing school, uh, feeling real horny and mm. stuff. Like yeah. to me that feels very uh, hunger. I don't the characters aren't exactly right, but at the same time, like we know that Knud Hampson wrote a book and gave it to Bjorn Bjornsson and Bjorn Bjornsson was like, you shouldn't be a writer. And then in that fifth volume of my struggle, Canal Scard uh, writes and his teacher is uh, Jan Fasa, who is sort of Norway's biggest writer. One, one of them anyways, he's like, the generation before Canalsgard and was kind of like the, I don't know, would have been Canalsgard's version of Bjorn Bjornsson and uh, Jan Fasa reads Canalsgard's uh, writing and says, you need to not write about yourself anymore, mm. which he then did. But I feel like that mirrors sort yeah, of absolutely. Like Hampson's experience. Um, I think that book, the fifth one, kind of opens with something like, all of this took place when I was going to school in, yeah. in Bergen. And that's kind of how um, Hampson opens his book. And I think that book ends, The Fifth My Struggle, with him leaving Bergen mm. as well. So it, it it's really a it, one-to-one. Yeah, one-to-one. it feels like it mirrors it. I think 
Canal Start similarly has like the way he deals with the women in his life is like irrational and seems like terrible from from an outside perspective in the way that same with the hunger guy mm. though the way they do it is not always exactly like they're weird and irrational like canal scart is like a very tall extremely handsome person so mm. it's not like he is this hunger character he's like mm-hmm. emaciated and falling apart but um i canal scart has said that if he had never read pan it probably would have saved him a lot of trouble in relationships oh uh, so there's some of that so uh, canal scart is sort of the closest i can come up with off the top no of i think that's that's right on and R- definitely the closest in literature risk or rest kalmakov or whatever yeah. might be another similar one but there he predates uh hunger so um the last thing i want to say yeah. is for the design inclined among us um if you can find a copy of hunger the 1970 version by the noonday press yeah which was given to me as a gift it has a cover design by milton glazer um and this is obviously an audio um format so just to describe it it's it's the letters h-u-n-g-e-r stacked on top of one another that form this mouth with like pointy kind of animalistic teeth Um, it's a great cover and i love the design of this book so it also includes the it's a translation by robert bly and the introduction that you mentioned by isaac bashevis singer the polish american dramatist so um it's a great copy and beautifully designed so if you can track this one down i'm sure it's on eight books or yeah i the one i have is the one i read in college which is just a fsg classic but i i used to have one i have a copy of pan that has just a very like simple line drawing of uh the the god pan like blowing some wind or something Mm -hmm. and i also have a copy of victoria in that edition and i used to have a copy of hunger and i can't remember what what the drawing is but it's sort of just a white background with a very thin line drawing of something but i uh gave it to my friend tim and so i don't have it anymore but the the i feel like those i think they're both probably mid-century uh editions and the book design covers tend to be better i think oh so good it's it's Um, really beautiful yeah mine like gets across i think sort of like the I don't know the anger or something. Yeah, it's an abstract painting. I'm, I don't even know if it's by me or something. Yeah, yeah. I looked it up. It actually doesn't say Milton Glaser's name anywhere in this, but it, um, if you search this version, it, it mentions him. Um, this yeah. was 1967, I guess. Okay. This version, FSG as well. Oh, 24th yeah. printing. <laughs> cool. I want. I don't know what my the old one I have is but or was but oh yeah interesting oh it's the same it is the same uh it's the same like uh it has the same yeah it's the oh, same my introduction uh, my introduction is by paul oster oh okay. actually okay. um who's a novelist i never read me neither uh anyways we're gonna uh hit stop on this uh thanks for doing this xander it's been a lot of fun uh do you want people to find you online? And if so, where should they do it? Yes, I also write a substack called Buzzcut, which includes close crop commentary on travel style, history, and nature. And you can find it at buzzcut.substack.com. Yeah, well, there'll be a link or something like that. I'm sure Substack will link them all together for us. But yeah, uh, 
thanks for doing this. Thanks for listening, you fools. Uh, bye. <laughs>